We've entitled this morning's message, <coughs> Handling Sin with Wisdom and Humility. And I think in time you'll see where we're going with our study here this morning. By way of introduction, we've had a little uh, time gap because of the holidays in our study of John and with special programs that we've had for Christmas and so on, plus snow that we had two weeks ago and we didn't have a, a service in the morning. Then we've had some guest speakers. As you know, Billy Michaud spoke and then my son spoke last week. So we've had a number of, number of interruptions to our text in John uh, and so I want to bring us back into context very briefly this morning, but it's important, I think, and even for some of the things that I need to say uh, to us today. But in a brief summary, starting if you just look in chapter 7, verse 1, when we started our exposition of John chapter 7, we noticed that the events are surrounding what is referred to in verses 1 and 2, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Ingatherings. It's all the same name. And I told you at that time that it will be continuing through chapter 8. So we've been dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles, and we have gone from the preparation of the feast and the Lord being in uh, Galilee before he went down to the feast, right up until, if you turn to chapter 7, verse 37, the last time, the last two times we were with you, we mentioned the fact that it was the last day of the feast. Verse 37, it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. So we've been in the Feast of Tabernacles, and we went from the preparation through the feast, and we were at the last day of the feast, in which the Lord Jesus Christ dramatically, as we saw in the scriptures, in relationship to that feast, presented himself as the source of life and the source of living water. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that. You who are here today and are alive have received life from your parents. But as you go back in time and you go back and trace things down and you go back in time, I'm going to maybe to most of you, it's not a shock, but you did not come from some gas in the air. You came because of the living God who created man in his own image and likeness. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of life and is the source of eternal life as well, as we have seen in the scriptures. And he dramatically presented himself as the source of living water in the last day of the feast, which fit very well with the first portion of it. That resulted in many reactions to him saying that he was the source of life and the source of living water. And that was our last study, verses 40 through 52, where we saw in that area that there were some that were challenged by him saying that, and they were listening and even drew some questions and were questioning whether that was possible, whether he could fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and indeed be the Messiah. Some were brought under conviction by the word that he had preached, as we saw. Others had an absolutely closed mind. They weren't interested. They weren't listening. They didn't hear what he said. And as a result, you ended up with two camps, as you always do. Those who came, came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the living water and receive the gift of life and those who rejected everything that he said. 
And that hasn't changed even as we move into a new decade, into 2010, and, and celebrate a new year. That will always be the same. As the word of God is presented, there will be different reactions to it, and there will be those who want nothing to do with it, close their minds, push it aside, and who are blinded as well by Satan, according to Corinthians. And there are those who God opens up their understanding miraculously. They receive the truth and are given the gift of eternal life. That's where we left off, in the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day. We're not finished with that last day, but there's been various reactions. And that leads us to our text, which is verses 53 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 11. And it's one that I hope your brains are not frozen from the snow and so forth as we go and you listen carefully to what I have to say. As we come to our text this morning, let me begin by saying it is a very familiar text. Most who have read the scriptures are very, very familiar with the woman who was taken in adultery. And it is used often in teaching. But I also want to make you aware of the fact, and most of you today, we are living in a different day and age, obviously, in this sense, that in Bible times, not everybody had a Bible in their hand. And today, we not only have our Bible, but because of our technology and so forth, and because of our study Bibles, you will find several notes, I'm sure, even in the Bibles that you're looking at, that will mention what I'm going to say to you this morning. I don't know whether they'll mention more detail or less. Depends on the study Bible. But this text is also a very controversial text. And it is also one that has a very, to put it mildly, strange history when you look at the text. And as you know, in my preaching and in my expounding of the Word of God, my desire is to teach the Word of God to you and to expound it just the way it should be expounded. So it's important that I set the background to these comments about controversy and the strange history for it. Let me give you some background to, some, uh, to this section. First of all, re regarding the manuscripts, and when I talk about the manuscripts, those are the ones that are available to us that assure us that we have the Word of God in our hands. As we look at the manuscripts, I want you to know that from verse 53 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 11, that this text does not appear at all in any of the oldest major manuscripts. It does not appear. Uh, many of the later manuscripts that we have, not the oldest ones, it's not there. The later manuscripts that have this text in it, most of them, and in fact, the majority of them, have an asterisk next to verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. And the reason they do that is because the text is questioned as to whether it was in the original manuscripts. You ought to be aware of that. The one primary, not that it's going to mean a lot to you, but for those of you that are familiar with textual criticism, the one primary manuscript that it's found in is Codex D, which is a major manuscript, but it's the only one that is found in in a later situation. The other thing that makes it a little strange with the text, and it's one that we take for granted because we're so familiar with it, is its position. As you go back and you study and you look at the manuscripts, it is found in various places. Now, you and I find it here in John chapter 7, and at the end of verse uh, 52, it begins in 
chapter 7, verse 53, and that's where we find the text. But if you were to go back and compare with the manuscripts, even within John's gospel, it is found in different places. It is found at the end of the gospel, for example. It is found after chapter 8 and is sometimes found in this particular place. <coughs> it is also found, just to give you the background, in the Gospel of Luke in some manuscripts and not found in John's Gospel. So it has a rather different, uh, interesting situation even regarding its position. And I will say this, as you go through this text, it does not fit the text that we're in. Because we're dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles, and to just give you some background as to where I will be next week when I pick it up in chapter 12, in the, in the, the feast, the last day of the feast, two significant things happened. One was the water that was brought to the feast, and I've dealt with that in verses 40 to 52. And then there was the lights that were lit on the last day. And that is the next part of the presentation in which Jesus Christ is going to say that he is the light of the world. And that fits very well with the context of John. So even its fitting in the context is rather interesting. Also, as you go back and study the early church fathers and so forth, any one of them that expounded the scriptures, and there are several that gave commentaries in expositional form, all those that gave commentaries of the Greek early church fathers, there wasn't a single one of them that gave an exposition on chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. However, historically, every single one of them, including some comments from the apostles in writings that are not in the scriptures, refer to it as an historical event that was well known at the time. It was well known at the time as apparently being an authentic historical incident that happened, but there was question as to whether or not it should have been part of the text. I think it's important for you to realize that. It's also important for us to realize that textual criticism can be a good thing, so that as you're sitting there, you ought not to be shocked, because that's how we know that we have the Word of God. It is through canonization, and it is through textual criticism, and for people being so careful to make sure that we have the Word of God, that we have such footnotes in our Bibles today. Now, having said that to you, what is the conclusions that we come to then regarding this text, beginning in chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8 and verse 11? Number one is that it apparently is a very authentic historical event. Number two, it is also true to the character of Jesus Christ when you look at his character and you look at the way he handled things. It is also consistent with Scripture. And we cannot determine, because of the footnotes and everything else, whether or not it was actually a part of the original text of John. Uh, and since we cannot be absolutely sure 100%, we will exegete it. It's that it wasn't part of it. My personal opinion, if you want to ask that, and people might ask that, is I think most likely the manuscripts that have it in Luke chapter 21 is where it should be, and I'll show you why. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 21.
So what I'm saying to you, the best of my studying is I don't think it was probably part of John's original text. And there's enough documentation to say that it was a historical event. And if it fit any text at all, it was probably here. And I'll show you why. Luke chapter 21, let's just read verses 37 and 38. Now during the day, he was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night in the Mount of Olives that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, if you And by the way, as I said, in some of the manuscripts, this is where the text is actually found. And if you now go back to John chapter 7, and you look at verse 53, and then you look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, you find this. And everyone went to his home, and when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him and sat down and began to teach them. So what I'm saying to you is I believe it probably fits best in the Luke text. However, since it is here in our English Bible, I will expound it right here in John. So while I believe that it fits best in Luke and with those manuscripts that have it there, since in our English Bible it is here in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 811, I will expound it now. But I do believe the flow of John is most likely 52 of chapter 7 and then in chapter 8, verse 12 is where it continues on with the Feast of Tabernacles. But let's expound the passage to you now. And again, we'll take a look at the text. And what I want you to see is the bigger picture. I believe this text is tremendously helpful to us as far as teaching justice and mercy and how they work together. And I think the focus of attention, while many put it on the woman, and while many put it on the questioning of the Pharisees, they miss the whole point that really is being taught in the text anyway. So let's look at the accusation. The accusation in the test, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8 in the first part of verse 6. So let me read that again. And everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him and sat down and began to teach, he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And when, and they that were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds accusing him. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we just read in Luke, very commonly spent time in the Mount of Olives praying. And by the way, if you saw in that text in Luke, he prayed all night. That certainly is a challenge in lining up with the message that my son gave <coughs> last week regarding our prayer time. Whether we pray, whether we can even pray for an hour. And when we learn how to pray properly, I think we can do that and we can pray on a consistent basis. But the Lord Jesus Christ had spent time with his heavenly father. He had been praying at the Mount of Olives. We know that. And now he's back in Jerusalem teaching, according to the text here. 
And when he does, a problem arises. The leaders, the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman to him that according to them was caught in the very act of adultery, verse 4. And the accusation is twofold. One, she's been caught in adultery. Two, is that Moses' law, according to what they said in verse 5, calls for stoning her. Now, why do they do this? The text is clear to us. According to verse 6, they are there to test the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I tried to emphasize it both times that I read it, but in verse 5, the end of the verse where it says, what then do you say? That is emphatic in the original language. What they are saying is, look, we have caught her in the very act. They walked in and caught her in adultery. Secondly, he is saying that they are saying to him, the law of the Old Testament says to stone her. But we want to know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Now, why were they testing him? Because the Lord Jesus Christ had claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one that can give life. He claimed to be the living water, as we've seen again this morning. This is a real test. Think about it. Number one, if he contradicts the law of Moses, if he says to them, no, do not stone her, then what's the problem? He's not the Messiah. Why? Because he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law. And if he just puts aside the law, now that's going to be important to some application a little later on. Because sometimes even the issue of sin, we think you can just put it away like it didn't happen. In our society today, in the 21st century, as you know, people don't even want to use the word sin. It's a mistake. It's a disease. It's a problem of our ancestors. It's a problem of the person's culture or environment, rather than turning around and saying, sin is sin. And our society wants to put it away. The Lord Jesus Christ could not do that. He could not just overlook it as if it had never happened. And if he did that, he could not qualify as the Messiah. The Pharisees knew that. Secondly, if he called for the execution of the woman by stoning, he had two more problems. And again, the Pharisees knew this. What were the problems? Number one, he's been teaching the people and showing mercy. He's been teaching the people and showing how God's grace is greater than man's sin. And so in the people's eyes, they were following a teacher not only that taught the truth, but one that was very merciful, unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees. But he had an even greater problem. What was that? You read it in your responsive reading. Would you turn with me to John chapter 18? The Pharisees and Sadducees knew exactly what they were doing. Why? In John chapter 18... Now, we read verses 28 to 38. Just go to verse 31 to get the heart of the, the issue. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves. This is referring to Jesus Christ, who, by the way, isn't it interesting? 
Let me make a comment on this. Here they have a woman caught in adultery that they're trying to accuse. Of course, they're innocent, right? We'll deal with that in a second. Now in John chapter 18, they take the Lord Jesus Christ, who even Pilate cannot find to have sin in him, and they're trying to accuse him. They're bringing an accusation against him, verse 29. And they're accusing him of things that he did not do, as in being an evildoer, verse 30. But I want you to notice verse 31. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. You say, well, he's giving him freedom. Yeah, but they can only go so far. Why? Look at verse 31. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. They could only go so far under Roman law. And they could not, without going to the Roman government, even put someone to death. Thus, they knew when they brought back, you can go back to John chapter 8, they knew the dilemma that Christ was facing. If he did, said to them, well, Moses was wrong, or he avoided the law, he doesn't fulfill the Messiahship. If he says to them, yes, take him out and stone him, they know that now he's in trouble with the government, and now he's not abiding by the government laws. So they feel they've got him right where they want him. And they feel that this is a tight case, and there's no way that he can get out of this. Now, I want to bring some reality to you. Obviously, as you look at the text back in John chapter 8, we have the privilege of seeing verse 6. They were testing him. This was a setup. Do men set up things like this? Yes, they do. Do men set up things so that people fall into sin? Absolutely. This was an absolute hypocritical situation where they set it up with this woman. How do we know that? Well, let me ask you this. Where's the man? I don't know. Neither do I. You know why? Because the text doesn't deal with it. What happened? They set it up so that they would catch this woman in the very act of adultery. These Pharisees and Sadducees had set this whole situation up. They were breaking the laws. Why? Because according to the Jewish law and the Ten Commandments that were given, both parties were to be taken and were to be given the death penalty. Both of them. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. This is, by the way, a great lesson on why you study the scriptures and why you need to know what the scriptures say. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were supposed to be the guards of the scriptures, knew the scriptures, but not as well as the Lord Jesus Christ did. So in verse 10, let's get right to it. Chapter 20, Leviticus, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both of them. The Pharisees weren't interested in this. And I don't believe for one minute, one of the commentaries I read said that maybe the guy was too fast and he got away. Are you kidding me? 
Okay, and I'm just trying to show you how ridiculous this, this situation is. What it is, it's a situation where the Pharisees had set it up. And then uh, they don't want to show any mercy on this woman, and they probably set the guy up who they probably knew was involved with other things or whatever. But the whole thing is a setup, and they're not even going according to the law. They're just looking to test the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what happens as they put him to the test? How does he respond? Well, we have the indictment and the challenge, as I have in your notes, in verses 6 through 9. And let's look at it. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now look at the result, verse 9. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she was in the midst. I want you to notice several things. As far as the sin, he never denied the guilt of the woman in this passage. So don't think that the Lord Jesus Christ just ignored the sin. In fact, he says, go and sin no more when we get to verse 11. He didn't deny that she had committed adultery. He did not make light of what she did. But I want you to notice something else. He didn't concentrate on it either. And I want to say something about that. We have a tendency to do that. When someone sins, we spend all of our concentration on their sin and also all of our concentration on thinking that we are not like them. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. They were bringing this woman. Was she guilty? Yes. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't concentrate on that. Neither did he violate the law of Moses or Roman law by what he did. What was he doing? Jesus writes on the ground. Well, everybody's got the curious question. What did he write? You know what my answer is. I don't know. There are those who feel that he was writing the sins of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Possible. I don't know. There are those who feel, and this is a number of commentaries believe this, feels that it lines up with what was brought out in the book of Jeremiah where the sins would be, uh, would be written down, their names and so forth. Possibly. I don't know. I don't want to get lost in that. Why? That's not the main part of the text. All it tells us is he stooped down and he started writing on the ground. I think the key to it is verse 7. He says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, why is that significant? Would you go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17? Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and this is not the only Old Testament verse, but just to get to one right to the point. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. 
and the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So shall you purge evil from your midst. In the court of justice, there had to be two witnesses, first of all. And when there were witnesses, the first one to stone the person was the one that made the accusation. And that person could not be involved in the sin that the person had been involved in. That's interesting. Why? Because in this particular case, when you look at it, the Lord Jesus Christ not only knew the scriptures better than they did, in that both people should be stoned, and by the way, all it said was there was a death penalty, then when you compare with Deuteronomy, stoning was one of the ways that it could happen. But both parties were to be executed. They only brought one. Secondly, those that were making the accusations had to be free from that which they were accusing the person of. And they were to be the first ones to lead in the stoning. The Lord Jesus Christ put it right back on them. They put him, what they thought was, in a box where he couldn't get out. But he, in knowing the word of God better, put it on them. They would have been the ones to, first of all, violate Roman law. Secondly, they would have been the ones that should have been carrying out the law of Moses the right way. Now, what does that tell us? As he appeals to the law, it probably tells us that, again, because it was a setup, that they were the ones that were guilty in setting it up. They couldn't even do it because of the conviction that came to them, because Moses' law said that they were to lead in this when they were the ones who had found her in the act of it and were doing this to test the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that they were guilty of it. It also shows us that even if that was not the conviction, the teaching of the Lord was even greater than the Mosaic law. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. I'd like you to just look at verse 28 for a moment. Well, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's right. True. Part of the Ten Commandments. Verse 28. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her or for her has committed adultery adultery with her already in his heart. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't bypass the law. In fact, he drove it home deeper to show that it isn't just the overt act of doing something. It is the inner man that God's concerned with. It is the heart that God's concerned with. And when you have this incident in John chapter 8, where they bring this adulterous woman, these Pharisees and Sadducees certainly were guilty of that. In fact, we all are, if we're honest in our hearts. And he brings out a couple of things that I want to deal with by way of application. Jesus, I believe, carefully exposes the hypocrisy of man in general, 
certainly of the Pharisees and of the scribes. You know, we are very quick to judge other people's sins and not to look in the mirror. Very quick. The Pharisees and Sadducees wanted this adulterous woman. Is she guilty? Yes. To be made an example of, to be exposed, to have everything, to have her stoned and to expose the Lord Jesus Christ, which he had, there was nothing to expose him to. And they in their hearts were filled with sin. They in their hearts would not accept the Messiah. They were the ones that had set up this adulterous scene in all probability based on the context. They were the ones by the conviction of having to go away in verse 9. When they heard the scriptures, they knew that they were not guiltless. That they were just as guilty as the woman was. And they could not throw that first stone because of their sin. Sometimes we think we're better off than others who commit murder. Because, And by the way, I'm not telling you to go out and commit murder in case anybody misinterprets that on the tape. Not at all. But we hate people. We sometimes commit adultery in our hearts. We think we're better off because no one can see it. Or we have envy. We have greed in our hearts. And we think we're better off and we want the sins of others exposed. How hypocritical we are, even as Christians, by application. And we need to see that we need to be careful. We need to do a self-examination. And by the way, that's where it comes together as far as examination, where Matthew 7, 7 fits in. We need to examine our own lives first. When the Pharisees and Sadducees examined their own life in verse 9, they found sin there even in this very act and could not be the one to lead in the punishment of this individual. But it raises another question for us, practically speaking, doesn't it? How then do you forgive without breaking the law? How do you then carry out justice, which has to be carried out, and yet have forgiveness? That's really where verses 10 and 11 come in. And it is true with us. Watch in verses 10 and 11, the outcome and the mercy. Straightway, Jesus stood, said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? He did not excuse her sin. But what does he say in verse 11? She says, No one, Lord. Jesus admits that she's a sinner because he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Jesus is alone with her, and it is Jesus alone who can forgive her. It is Jesus alone who can forgive sin. It is Jesus alone who has satisfied the payment for sin. And it is Jesus alone who can provide the reconciliation between the sinner and the mercy of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. How do you reconcile sin, justice, and mercy? In 
In Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read a couple things from Romans. Just look at verse 3 for now. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, because man can't keep the law, he can't keep the Ten Commandments, and we see what our inner heart is like. But watch this. God did it. How did he do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man, or sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He didn't break the law of Moses. He didn't break Roman law. He was also the one that was able to forgive this woman. Why? He came as the sacrifice for sin. Not to bypass it. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. He is the only one that in reality could forgive. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. I'll go back to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If there's one thing that this account does for us in John, is not only expose the woman committed adultery, but it exposes all the others, meaning the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in their sin, in their hypocrisy. And whether you think someone else has committed a sin that's worthy to be exposed and you haven't, you're a sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift. How? By the grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Sin can't just be ignored. It can't be put aside. It had to be paid for. That's what Jesus Christ came to do, to redeem, to purchase. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a mercy seat in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate, watch this, his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It comes together because man is a sinner, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who paid for sin. Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies the justice and then can give mercy to the sinner. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. These are familiar passages. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 24. He himself, that is Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin to live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. I'll read verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, 
we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. He that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin. That's why Pilate said, I find no fault in him. That is why Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the reconciliation between justice and mercy is the cross. And he made him to be sin on our behalf, it says, that we might become the righteousness of God. Where? In him. So even back in John chapter 8 with the adulterous woman, how is it then that he could say to her, go and sin no more? And he doesn't condemn him. He's the only one who truly, in the eyes of God, can forgive sin because he is the sacrifice for sin. And the reconciliation between a sinner, justice, and mercy is the cross of Calvary. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who they came to test, the one who they came to show wasn't the Messiah, demonstrates in John chapter 8 that he is the Messiah, demonstrates that he does fulfill the law. He is the only one who is without sin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had to walk away from the woman. He did not. What does that say for us? If you are without Christ, you have no hope. You're just like the Pharisee, a sinner. Maybe you haven't committed murder. Maybe you haven't committed adultery. That is the overt acts. But what about your heart? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What hope is there for us? Justice has to be paid. It was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. We just looked at some verses in Romans on that. We just looked at verses in Peter, in 2 Corinthians. He is the one who can forgive. He is the one who can provide the way for God's mercy to be shown toward us. And then what happens? Before we close today, he says, from now on, sin no more. Often people ask, well, if, you just, if salvation is just believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, can I live any way that I want then? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Even this adulterous woman, he did not say, you did not sin. He said, sin no more. In Romans chapter 5, we see how God's grace works. Pick it up in verse 20. The law came, let me put it to you this way, why are there ten commandments? Why is it so? They came that, tra that transgression or sin might increase. It's exposed. If we didn't have a commandment that said don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not commit murder, there would be not only chaos, but we would have nothing to go back to. But that's our standard that exposes it. And then Christ is exposed that it's going on in our hearts. But notice verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where grace did, uh, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Much more. Where? In the person of Jesus Christ, who was innocent but bore the penalty of our sin. And when a person has come to faith in Christ, verse 1 of chapter 6, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So back to Romans chapter 8, it answers a couple of questions for us, or is very consistent. What is it? Again, we are all sinners and all dependent upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does meet the requirements of the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the only one who is without sin. We are not. We cannot make greater the sin of somebody else as if we are better. Anyone in this room that is saved is simply saved by the grace of God. Some like to say we're saints that are saved. I still use the expression because we were sinners and now we're saved by grace. We were sinners, all of us. Do we continue to sin? Yes, but by the grace of God, we've been saved from its penalty by the only one who can bring and satisfy the justice of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can forgive. Only he can forgive your sin, just like with this woman. Don't be a hypocrite, even as a believer. Don't be a hypocrite in looking at someone else's sin while you are waging sin in your heart unless you can be the first one, so to speak, to throw a stone. What we ought to do is pray for one another. And what we ought to do is live unto righteousness as it ends in verse 11. So in this situation, did Jesus Christ fail the test? No, he passed. Who failed? The hypocritical Jewish leaders. You see, they thought their religion, they thought their position in society, they thought their self-righteousness or good was better than this adulterous woman, and it wasn't. Because all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They needed the grace of God just as that woman needed the grace of God. And it is only found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to, by faith, trust in him to have the gift of salvation. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied the righteousness of God because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Father, I know that many in this room have trusted in Christ. But Father, we still have this tendency of the Pharisees and Sadducees in us. When we see another brother or sister fall into sin, we're more apt to talk about it. We're more apt to gossip about it rather than pray. We're more apt to look at them and boost ourselves up. Father, guard us against that. We pray that if there be any here that have not trusted in Christ, that they would see that they are a sinner in need of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, just like this adulterous woman was. And I pray that they'd come to Christ by faith. Those of us who have trusted in him, help us, Father, to live by the grace of God. And, Father, to go our way, not pursuing sin that grace might abound, but to pursue righteousness, to yield to the Spirit of God, that we might have a life that's pleasing to you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.